Dotnet Rocks episode 664 with guests Andreas Vincenetz and Kevin Vinson. Recorded live Tuesday, May 10th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, New London, Connecticut. Richard Campbell in Vancouver, British Columbia. We are here. Are you? Well, I know I am. I, I definitely am. At least last time I checked. Well, that makes two of us. Yeah. Well, Richard, um, I found, <laughs> in, in uh, you know, out of respect to our guests today, I found some really good astronomy jokes, or really bad astronomy jokes, oh, depending no. on what you think, uh, on the web. These are from uh, jupiterscientific.org. Uh, astronomy joke number one, what is preparation A? I don't know. Answer, it's the name of an over-the-counter product used to relieve the pain and suffering from asteroids. Oh, no. All right, that's not very good. That's terrible. Here's, here's a good one. Uh, it is reported that Copernicus's parents said the following to him at the age of 12. Copernicus, young man, when are you going to come to terms with the fact that the world does not revolve around you? <laughs> <laughs> a New York City tenant was overheard saying, whatever the missing mass of the universe is, I hope it's not in cockroaches. Nice. Yeah. Here's a limerick about Edmund Haley. From the public, his discovery brought cheers. From his wife, it drew nothing but torrents of tears. For you see, said Miss Haley, he used to come daily. Now he comes once every 70 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I should have read that. That's not right. I should have scanned that yeah, before yeah, I read that it. Needed, that needed previous approval. You need to vet these things. <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, I hope they're still still waiting on the line. There you go. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, let's jump into Better Know Framework. The weirdest music ever. I love it. Yeah? I've had people asking me they want to license it from me. They want a ringtone. They want a ringtone, I saw yeah. that. That's weird. That's just weird. <laughs> That's weird right there. All right. Today, I'm talking about system.messaging, which is, you know, where message queuing is in yeah. the framework, in .NET framework. System.messaging.imessageformatter. This is an interface that you use when you create your own serializer and deserializer for uh, message queuing objects. Oh, okay. For messages. So building your own. Yeah. Well, um, there are formatters that are built in. You have... Uh, the binary message formatter, the ActiveX message formatter, and mm -hmm. the XML message formatter. Uh, but if you want to create your own formatter to do your own serialization and plug it right into message queue, you can implement that interface and uh, have a ball. Yeah, I don't know why you would, but it's nice that you can. Yeah. Well, there it is. There it is. That's it. There's your random class of the day. Actually, it's an interface, but your your random interface of the day. That's it, man. But it's good to know. Absolutely. These things add up. Thank you, my friend. Richard, who's talking to us? You know, we did that disaster recovery show with Pat Hines. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot, of, lot of feedback. Lots of feedback. Great stream of commentary. So, actually, there's a, uh, there's a disaster story here from Jonathan Ray I thought we'd read. Uh-oh. This podcast about disaster recovery was very informative and really hits home. I just wish I would have heard it earlier. Don't! Here's why. Just this Monday morning, one of our RAID arrays died in one of our SQL servers. The admin said the RAID array was non-recoverable because they were old 30-gigabyte drives that weren't available any longer. You know, I'm telling you, man, nobody was thinking about that when we started RAID. Yeah. When we started implementing RAID. Yep. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm getting rid of all of them. They ordered new drives and built a new array. We thought, okay, we're good because we have a full daily backup and 30-minute transaction log dumps. I said, all right, we'll be back up by lunch. Then I find out that you can't start a SQL Server instance if the master MDF file is missing. Well, we have the master MDF, but only as a back file. I had to rebuild the master database, then restore or replace the master model, 
MSDB and production databases. Of course, I had no idea how to do any of that. It required reading three different MSDN articles and restarting SQL Server about 10 times, and that took four hours, and it wasn't because it was a huge production database. Total server downtime, one day, seven hours, 15 minutes. Lesson learned? Oh. I was not prepared. Uh. And this is, uh, we said this on the show, which was, until you've actually done a scratch restore, you don't actually know. There's little... Little gotchas, which obviously Jonathan has now experienced to getting mm-hmm. things back up and running. Mm-hmm. And the worst part would have been if you suddenly realized you were missing a piece. And, uh, yeah, no, you can't restore that. It's not coming back. And that's pretty painful. So, uh, Jonathan, you got back successful and I can't help you with that recovery, but I can send you a mug. So I'll send you a mug. Thanks so much for your comment. And if you've got questions or concerns or ideas for shows, or you want to tell us how our shows have affected you, write a comment on our website at dotnetrocks.com. Awesome. Um, Richard, you have a, um, a special message you want to uh, tell the folks about today. You know, we normally do fun-filled stuff on this show, but this is uh, not as fun, uh, but it is important to me. I, I lost a dear friend uh, uh, a few days ago. His name is Derek Miller, and actually he's quite well-known, uh, quite a prolific blogger. His website is penmachine.com. Uh, Derek was a little bit younger than I am, uh, a father, uh, two lovely daughters, and an amazing wife. He was a technical writer. And, uh, and just an extraordinary person all around. And because he was a blogger, when he found out he got cancer four years ago, he simply wrote about it and never hid anything the whole time that he was going through chemotherapy and every treatment you could imagine, including up to the point where he just had enough that there was no more treatments for him and, mm. uh, he wasn't going to get any better. Uh, and his last blog post, and I, I recommend you read it at penmachine.com was posted posthumously. He wrote it a few days before he would pass. Mm. And uh, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read, and I, I can't say enough about it. And I miss him, but uh, he was a great person. And, it's an uh, amazing, amazing and touching post. Yeah. 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 So uh, feel free to go out and read it, and uh, that's, that's one of my friends. Okay. Sorry about that, man. Let's do the show. Well, Richard, this is a very special show, as you know. Um, uh, this is a, a great show. We're going to talk to two very important people in the world of science, Andreas Vitsenets and Kevin Vinson. Uh, Andreas is the Winthrop Professor, Andreas Vincenets. I won't read his whole bio, but I'll just say since 2010, uh, he's been Winthrop Professor at the University of Western Australia, leading the Information and Communication Technology Program of the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research, that's ICRAR, to research, design, and implement data flows and high-performance scientific computing for the Murchison Wide Field Array, MWA, the Australian SKA Pathfinder, and the SKA. We're going to find out all about that in a second. Uh, Research Associate Professor Kevin Vinson, since 2009, has been research associate professor at the University of Western Australia, working on the design of data-intensive HPC systems in support of the ICRAR signature themes of H1 variable universe and data-intensive research. Prepare to geek out. (laughs) Welcome, professors. Hi. Hello. So let's identify you by voice. Uh, Kevin? Yes, I'm the one with the British accent. Okay. And Andreas? And I'm the one with the German accent. Fabulous. I guess we should start with, uh, well, Richard, you know, this is really your baby. I mean, you got these guys to on the show, and um, you were really interested about it because of the uh, the radio uh, aspect of it. Uh, I got an email, actually, from a fellow named Nathan Lindorf, who's down in Australia, who saw uh, Kevin present on, on ICRAR. And just gave me a sense of the vastness of the data problem. And I thought, you know, I bet people would like to hear about this. But it all comes back, I guess, to radio astronomy. Uh, so, uh, professors, maybe we need a quick recap on what radio astronomy is all about and why it's important. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, radio astronomy is uh, one of the um, well, really fundamental parts of the astronomical research area. Um, mainly, we are trying to cover a lot of uh, wavelength bands, but the radio astronomy is the longest one. So we are uh, finding out things about the astronomical objects in, in that um, 
wavelength area, uh, which are quite different from the optical or, or X-ray or gamma ray stuff. Um, and that's the main thing. We would like to find out um, uh, things about uh, the objects in all, all those wavelength areas. And that gives a kind of a holistic picture about those objects. So um, radio, the radio domain has been uh, evaluated since, uh, well, just after the war, essentially, and had a peak uh, in the 1950s. And uh, since then, it's actually kind of stagnating, except for some special techniques like VLBI, which is a um, technique which is using uh, antennas across the globe. And uh, like this, uh, achieves a, a very high resolution, spatial resolution. Now, uh, in the meantime, we are actually uh, seeing another peak between, let's say, 2001 and, and now. And within the next few years, we will produce a new uh, set of observa observatories, um, both in the millimeter, submillimeter wavelengths, that's the microwave stuff, essentially, mm -hmm. and then in the longer wavelengths uh, for the SK between 70 megahertz and uh, about 10 gigahertz. Now, at first glance, I thought radio astronomy might have something to do with you know, what they're doing with the SETI project, you know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, where we're, we're listening for, uh, you know, in looking at data that, with very large arrays, and the, it was the arrays that sort of threw me off. But that's not what this is about, right? This is regular, uh, good old astronomy imaging using radio. Is that right? That's, that's uh, absolutely correct. I mean, uh, if, you, if you would detect something like an artificial signal with uh, those um, antennas, with those new, new observatories, that would be recognized as well. But... Uh, is not the prime uh, goal. The prime goal are really different things, and uh, one of them is uh, uh, the what is called the epoch of reionization, and that means um, just after the Big Bang, uh, there is an epoch where, where essentially the, the universe got transparent, and uh, at that point we can actually detect signals. Um, that's pretty long ago, it's 13 billion years ago, wow. or something like that, and and. Uh, um, it's one of the very, very important things to understand uh, because that's very basic fundamental physics as well in, involved in that. Yeah, and I don't want to gloss over that. Um, we'll talk about the really big data problems in a minute, but do you, do you, can we just say that again in, a little more clearly? You say that the universe went transparent right after the Big Bang? Yep. Like ever, all the matter in the, in the universe was see-through. Exactly, yeah. So uh, before that, it was actually not transparent at all because it was so compact and, and dense that uh, it, it's essentially like a block of material. Mm. And after that, uh, it became transparent. And uh, that's the first time that we can actually receive photons uh, uh, out of, of that uh, area and space-time um, uh, domain. And that what that means, really... Uh, is uh, we can look back with, with kind of uh, the SKA, once it's really completely built, we can look back uh, until that, that uh, point in time. Now, is this going back further in time than the Hubble was, uh, has gone? Because I remember the Hubble was the thing. A bit, not too much actually, but it's a completely different wavelength domain. Right. Uh, Hubble is, is in the optical. Mm -hmm. We are trying to, to match up now with uh, the radio waves as well. Uh, I mean, we, there, was, uh, there are experiments going on uh, right now which are mapping the cosmic microwave background. And uh, this kind of stuff uh, is going back to the same uh, space-time coordinates. But uh, we, ha we have to cover the whole thing, the right. whole wavelength uh, area. And that means also into the radio. That's very important because uh, what you can see in radio is, is mostly um, the basic fundamental building block of the universe, and that's hydrogen. Well, what questions are answered by looking at radio waves? What questions do you hope to answer? Um, the, uh, uh, well, the first one, and the, the most important one in this case, is uh, how the universe has been formed between uh, getting transparent and uh, building up uh, galaxies. Um, that's not quite yet, uh, well known yet. And the uh, 
the way to, to look at it is really to look at the hydrogen because that's what, what was essentially there at the time. Mm. And um, so that's where we, we have to look into hydrogen. Hydrogen is best visible in radio waves. Is what is invisible or is visible? Uh, no, it is visible. Yeah. Best visible. Now, this SCAR project it stands for Square Kilometer Array. That's a big array. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's big. Uh, I mean, we, we have to remember um, photons, and well, radio photons are the wimps in this space. An optical photon has around two electron volts, whereas a radio photon is one micro-electron volt. Wow. So a million wow. times weaker. Now, the other problem we have is the wavelength. Hydrogen, as Andreas was saying, is what we're looking for. And what we're looking for is a signal at 21 centimeters. This is the signal that happens when hydrogen does a spin inversion. It goes from a higher energy state to a slightly lower one and emits a signal at 21 centimeters. Okay. <laughs> but that means that we need big dishes to be able to see it because yeah. it's the wavelength divided by the diameter of the aperture. And because the wavelength is 21 centimeters, we need big Ds. Yeah. So big distances. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side -side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to telerik.com decompiling and remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I'm not, not a scientist by any means, but I can sort of see a parallel. Uh, I'm a musician and... Uh, a bass player is one of the things that I'm also. And bass amplifiers in the 70s were made with really big speakers, li really big woofers. You know, they're like 19-inch woofers to to make big waves. That was the, what they thought. And, you know, somewhere in the 80s or 90s, they figured out that if they had arrays of smaller speakers in a bass amplifier, like 10-inch speakers, four or eight perhaps, the, the, you could generate the same size wave, but even, even a bigger wave, but using smaller cones and more of them. And I assume that the, the same principle applies when you have more than one, uh, telescope, if you will, a radio telescope or whatever you call it, and you line those up in a big cluster, you get something that is the size of all of them put together. Essentially, that's right, yeah. If you look at the, the iconic radio telescopes, um, parks down here in Australia, um, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory at Green Bank in West Virginia in the States, traditionally these are big dishes. Um, parks is 64 meters. Massive great things. I mean, these are big engineering projects. What has been discovered using very long baseline inferometry is we can have lots of little dishes and then get the same result. But we have to do a huge amount of computing yeah. to be able to do it. Because what we have to do is then effectively add the signals from each of the dishes together. Right. We do a process called correlation. And that is one of the biggest CPU problems that we face. Is it just this simple correlation task, adding them all together? Because as we increase this baseline, um, and we're, we're looking for SKA between 3,000 and 5,000 kilometers, i.e. across the two candidate sites. Um, at the moment, there are two candidate sites, one here in Australia and one in South Africa. Australia is slightly wider than South Africa, so we can go to about 5,500 kilometers. So a photon arriving over 
in New Zealand will arrive a, time, a significant time difference before it arrives here in Western Australia. So we have to add time delays in to do this and then add them all together. Very big problem. How many different radio telescopes are we talking about? Right. Well, for the, for the pathfinders that we're building at the moment, we're talking about 36. We will be building here in Australia, um, the CSIRO will be putting up 36 telescopes. Okay. We've got six built at the moment, and they'll be putting up a 12-meter dish one a week till the end of the year to give us 36. And each one of these dishes is precisely controlled, so they're all aligned correctly? Oh, yes. Wow. So you've got a, got a lot of problems with this. But for the SKA, for the first phase of it, we're looking at 1,000. Holy. Wow. <laughs> That's just first phase. Now, that's where it starts to get interesting on the computational side, because it's an n, n plus 1 over 2 problem. Right. What we have to do is correlate the signal from, that arrives at a dish with every other dish. Oh, man. So if we've got one telescope, we have a processing unit of, say, one. For 36 telescopes, we need 666 times the processing power. Jeez. For 1,000 telescopes, we need 500,500. Now, this isn't... More processing power to be able to do it, because we have to correlate every telescope with every other. Now, does this correlation have to be done in real time? Yes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> now, the, the, the real-time component of it is an enormous problem. Yeah. Um, the data coming out of the telescope Oh, out of the arrays. I mean, it, going through the beamformer, I think it's 70 terabits a second. After it comes out of that, it's about 21 terabits a second. We're looking at um, for the data rates here. So my USB now, key isn't going to cut 20, it. 21 terabits <laughs> a second is, is a big number, but you know, we can expand that out. Now, 21 terabits a second is about 232 petabytes a day. Oh, is the data rate coming out of ASCAP. That's just the Pathfinder. Yeah. The SKA proper, the estimate is around 7 petabits a second. Good God. Wow. Which is a pretty significant number. That's a lot of data. Yep. And now to do that correlation, um, for ASCAP, we need about 340 teraflops. For the SKA, we need to go to and probably above an exaflop. Now, the most powerful machine on the planet at the moment is 2.5 petaflops in China. So we've got a way to go there. You are, yeah, so in order to make SKA do what it's supposed to do, you're going to have to break new ground in computational performance. So needless to say, it hasn't been done yet? It ha hasn't been done yet. We've bought hardware, and we're starting to gear up for the ASCAP here in Australia now. Um, the first unit is installed. The second unit is tendered for. The tender is closed. We're waiting to see what comes out of that. That's being run by the CSIRO through IVEC, who are the um, supercomputer group for Western Australia. Mm. Now, I mean, to sort of put, put it into some context for your listeners, you know, I mean, yeah. 340 teraflops, that's the equivalent of 434 PS3s. Okay. 868 Xboxes. <laughs> now, to get to the exaflop that we're talking about, that's the equivalent of 4.3 million PS3s, 8.7 million Xbox 360s, oh. or 9.3 million i7 Intels, the, the latest Intel calls coming out. Man. Or about... 215,000 um, HD 5970s, if we could use all of the power, which we can't, because we, we can't sequence the data in fast enough. Or you could use one iPad. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think it might be a tad more than one iPad. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking power calculation-wise, this is 100 megawatts of computing power? Uh, no, it's a bit more than that. Um, we we did, did some calculation based on a Blue Gene Q, which right. at the moment is the most efficient machine. Now, I mean, 
Intel are changing the rules under us at the moment because they've just announced this new 3D chip, which has got a significantly lower power consumption. But we'd be looking at around 350 megawatts for an exaflop. Yeah, so you need a small nuclear power plant. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, I mean, it, it's the output of half of the power station to the south of Perth. Right. Where we were, where we're based, <laughs> which supplies power to um, about seven hundred thousand people. To add on that a little bit, uh, the uh, um, that's that's the expectation if you take current um, technology, right? Yeah, that's, that's the uh, calculation based on that. But we can't do that for for sure. So the uh, um, the idea is to have uh, an exaflop. Uh, um, consuming something like 2 to 5 megawatts, like uh, the, the high-end computers right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that means we have to be uh, something like a factor of 100 better than what you can produce right now, uh, which is not easy uh, within something like 6 to 10 years. Um, but uh, it looks like we can, can actually tackle that um, together with industry, obviously. So tell us a little bit about the solution I mean, you said a little bit that you have the equipment in, in the gear, but, you know, what, what does that look like? Well, the solution is, is a, uh, we have some solution, and that, that's mainly for the current uh, pathfinders. Yeah. And then we are trying to do research uh, to be able to scale that up into uh, the SKA scheme. Now, is there any way that you can use lots of lots and lots and lots of smaller, less powerful machines? That's that's what we are trying to um, to consider, and, and obviously that's the way to go anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the, the modern uh, high performance computers are, are having hundreds of thousands of cores already. Yeah, uh, that poses a completely different problem because the software can't deal with that right now. Yeah, uh, so you have to to invent new algorithms and and um, make sure that your um, program programming paradigm is actually fitting that uh, model. Uh, which is currently not the case. Uh, so that that's another problem in there. It's not just the hardware, it's the whole system which has to f- uh, fit in. Uh, the other interesting uh, shift with SK and, and ASCAP is also uh, right now most of that computing power in, in current day uh, HPC systems is actually used to do simulations. Now simulations are uh, maybe producing quite some data, but they are not consuming a lot of data. Uh, that's very, very different, as we heard from Kevin before, uh, for the SK and for ASCAP already, because it will produce a lot of data. So what we are trying to do is, is uh, essentially uh, placing a, a supercomputer um, directly at the instrument. Uh, that means it's directly connected to the instrument, and the data is streaming through that supercomputer, which is a very different thing. Um, so we can't do things like batch processing, which is currently done on most of those uh, computers. We have to do a very different scheduling uh, mechanism as well. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine how you move seven petabits a second. Yeah. Like, that's not an Ethernet cable. Uh, yeah, um, it's many, many Ethernet cables. So what uh, this is the sum from all the uh, antennas together. Um, and what's going to happen is that this data is, is uh, uh, directly connected to the to a special backend uh, I/O card, which is uh, then processing part of the data uh, straight away into uh, and, and break it down to a lower data rate. Um, and uh, the correlation is coming out after that only. So there are several steps of data processing being done. One is, is uh, really real time and uh, it can't be done any anyhow else. So uh, we will lose quite some information on, in that step, but we can't uh, do any different. Um, and uh, the result of that is, is uh, quite a bit less, uh, still a lot, but uh, quite a bit less, and, and that's that's okay. Uh, then we can actually deal with it with uh, more, more standard computers at the end. Now, even if you just take ASCAP, um, we, we still have... Uh, of the order of, of a few terabytes of data to be uh, pushed through a high-performance computing system within uh, our margins right now, 10 seconds. And uh, 10 seconds uh, to, to push something through a high-performance computing system is actually uh, quite a challenge. Mm-hmm. We can't do that right now. 
And uh, so we are designing uh, the, the second stage of this um, computer system, which we just um, uh, closed the call for tender. Um, that's a specially designed uh, system, and uh, it's actually optimized to do data-intensive research. That means to push that uh, amount of data through the system. So it's it's a balanced system. It has a much higher Amdahl number, and that means it it's, uh, has a uh, a lot more I/O capability than standard HPC computers, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so what we are trying to do here is to optimize the system for I/O uh, because right. that's a bottleneck. It's not a compute. Are you? Did you say that you're using Intel processors? Um, well, the current the current machines are mostly Intel pro- processors, but it doesn't matter too much in, in this yeah. case because, as I said, the compute is n- is not the problem really. Right. It's really I/O. So. I mean, I'm familiar with some fairly high-speed I.O. systems like InfiniBand, but not at this level. That's not even close to what you need. 10 gigabit, like none of those things come close to denting the volume of data you're talking about. Right. Yeah, that's true. But uh, in, in some, you can actually do that. So you have to have many of those systems uh, highly parallel. And uh, the, the good point, uh, the good part of the whole thing is it's really uh, easily processing. That's possible. There's, there's no problem to do that. Uh, and and uh, there's a very little interaction between the uh, the individual tasks, so we can do that easily and, and spread it out to many machines. Oh, that's so of course, that's a problem in maintenance and and setup and uh, still some intercommunication. So you have to do, to have uh, quite a, a pretty well uh, intercommunication. Yeah. Uh, for the current systems, uh, we are looking into quad uh, InfiniBand, and that's probably sufficient for what we are doing. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Tell us what InfiniBand is. Yeah, InfiniBand is, is an uh, interconnect fabric, um, and uh, the current uh, best model of that is, is quad InfiniBand, and, and that goes up to 40 gigabits a second, and that's really a, a, a connection for a machine-to-machine connection. Yeah. And there are switches and everything. It's it's like a network essentially, but it's uh, it's a different fabric. Would you call that a backplane? No, it's not backplane. It's actually uh, mostly like like an Ethernet. You plug in a cable from one machine to to another, and mm. uh, you have some switches in between. It's it's like like a Ethernet. Okay. Uh, essentially, there's no it's not much difference between. Right. It. The price is a bit higher, but not mm. too much. Yeah, but it, and it's switched fabric versus hierarchical switching. It's a, it's a different model of switching. Yeah. Now, if the if the CPU power goes up, does the I/O load increase or decrease? In other words, if you can add more machines into the array at higher CPU loads, does that put a strain on the I/O or does that lessen the I/O? Um, what what we are trying to do is actually we can easily reduce the CPU uh, capabilities on a single node because right. uh, we are I/O constrained, right? And uh, that makes the whole thing a bit more. Uh, manageable right. uh, because also in terms of, of uh, budget because it, it gets less expensive per pc but you need to add more pcs right yeah so in total it might be the same but uh but uh, since we are io bound uh, we are trying to balance the system a bit more and that's especially true as, as soon as you're uh, using gpus graphic processing units because they are even much faster than, than the cpus at, at least in the algorithms we are using and uh, in effect, that means uh, we could use a fairly low-end uh, GPU if we want to to make the system balance. And yeah, I think GPUs are really perfectly suited for this, and and they're even more parallel and the simpler compute units. Like it's it's a good solution, and and they're more off the shelf. The top of the line uh, NVIDIA and ATI video cards out there that are these huge GPUs. They're still under a thousand dollars retail, much less buying in quantity, and they're really fast. 
Yeah, that's that's the the way to go for us definitely because uh, of course uh, such projects have a limited budget. So we are not uh, talking about things like landing on the moon, and uh, uh, the budget essentially wasn't wasn't the, the issue at all. Um, but here we have a limited budget, so the the idea is to have uh, the SK built in a kind of a ball game, two billion dollars, something like that. Jeez. Yeah, I thought I read that the the SCA budget was three billion, and there was a fear that the computing problem was actually more expensive than the telescope problem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a uh, an IT telescope. Uh, the the hardware is fairly complicated as well, but uh, by far not as as uh, challenging as what what we are talking about in the ICT, ICT area. Now I gotta know um, what kind of technology are you using to develop the software. Um, primarily we write in C and Fortran. Yeah, we're b- very old school because Scientists. we need to be <laughs> as sort of close to the silicon as we can to squeeze as many cycles as we can out of things. Right. We 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 stick with the, the old school stuff: C, Fortran, and C plus plus. Um. And we, we we really have to worry about things like how level one, level two caching works. Yeah. Because we don't want to have a cache line read, one piece of data taken out of it, and then have to get a new cache line. You know, we need the algorithms to work so that they will process the whole of that cache line if we can do it like that. Mm. So it's it's a little bit old school, but it it's all about speed. It is the old school problem. You're trying to do as much computation per cycle as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's very similar to um, how, how you look at cars. You know, an, an F1 race car is stripped right down to the basics on where you can use clever stuff you do. Yeah. But you make it as light as possible. You put plenty of good rubber on it, mm. and it will go like a bat out of Hades. Right. And essentially, that's the same process we're doing here. Are you actually going to store all this data uh, in a raw form, or do you have to compute it down before you try and store it? No, we, we can't store it in the raw form. Um, it's, it's, it's just too big. You yeah. know? I mean, we, we have to bear in mind, the SKA will generate enough raw data to fill 15 million 64 gig iPods Every day. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It, it's that big. But, I mean, hey, wouldn't that be a great call to make? You know, beep, beep, hello, is that the Apple store? I've got 15 million iPods every day. You know, I understand you have free shipping. in Apple if we ever go that route. <laughs> yeah, I have a question about iTunes. <laughs> it's not working so, for no, me. We, we can't store the, the raw data at le- level. What we do, as Andreas was saying, we, it goes through a pipeline, which um, in the ASCAP case is being developed by the CSIRO, and we do what's called data reduction. So right. we take this massive amount of raw data and we produce what's called a cube at the end of it. Now, a cube is our equivalent of a JPEG. Okay. Right? The only differences are it's a lot bigger. Yeah. And the word lot has, has many meanings. And in this case, it means a lot, lot. <laughs> a whole um, friggin' lot. <laughs> now, to, 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 I'll, I'll just explain it. I mean, we, we work at two resolutions for ASCAP, 2K by 2K and 8K by 8K. Now, we store floating point numbers. So that means we need four bytes. But unlike optical, where there's red, green, blue, we have 16,000 channels we have to store. Wow, right. Because that's the resolution of the radio wave, right? That, that's right. The, the, the reason being, you know, the optical band is 390 nanometers to 780, 790 nanometers, whereas we're storing data from sort of the, the millimeter band up to about 10 meters. That's a big band in the radio spectrum. That's a lot. Now, what that means is for ASCAP, Theoretically, we're going to have a single image being 4.4 terabytes. Mm. That's just one image. Mm. To cover the sky, we need a thousand of those. Oh, man. And that's got to be in real time. Yep. Well, it's, it's a real-time survey. It's a survey telescope, so it will be doing it. But Good God. What, what we'll be doing is we look at the same piece of space 
for a long time. Yeah. Now, some of our pointings may be eight, ten hours looking at the same piece of space. Yeah. Now, it's similar to what Hubble does. You know, some of the beautiful images you see from the Hubble Ultra Deep Fields, yeah. now, they were a million second exposure time. You know, right. It's the same as sort of holding the camera lens or the, the shutter open on your single lens reflex camera for a million seconds, 11 days. But you're also rotating that camera to compensate for the rotation of the Earth. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's added problems, of course. But, I mean, that's the, the scale of it. Now, what we'll be doing is we have these four terabyte cubes, and we'll be looking at the same piece of space again and again and again. One of the projects that um, we have down here is called um, Wallaby, which will be doing 100, uh, 200 pointings at the same piece of space. So we have to stack it all together. Sorry, 250 10-hour pointings. Sorry. To, okay. So that's 250 times 4.4 terabytes. We've got to be able to then add all of those images together. Wow, that's a lot of math. Which is another interesting problem. And you know, the, this is our, our final data. And what we want to be able to do is store it and keep it forever. Right. Because we, you know, we don't know what our grandchildren are going to want to do with our data. We have people now who are using photographic plates that were taken in the early part of the 1900s to look at supernova expansion. Yeah. So sure. i got a question for you. Mm -hmm. Where do you guys get hard drives that big? Tape is not dead. Long live tape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're just trading but, speed for, for size. Yeah. Yep. For, for the time being, we can't. You, yeah. you just cannot put that amount of data onto hard disk. Yeah, no, you can't. So what we'll be looking at is having a hierarchy of storage, which is very similar to what they're doing with the Large Hadron Collider. And I mean, the Large Hadron Collider, I think, um, I read recently, has 25 petabytes of data on tape. Right, yeah. And they tend to use the disk more as a cache. And we'll be doing some, sort of a similar thing. The, the data the astronomers want now will be the most recent stuff. So we'll keep that on disk. The stuff that is to be stored and kept can go back to tape. And if we need it, we then have to get it back from tape and move it up into the hierarchical storage management to the faster disks to be used. And then it can fall back and go back to tape. So it's, it's a whole new way of thinking that to, for this sort of large e-science project. But it's not just us that are facing these problems. Uh, I mean, the, the um, seismic community, the meteorologists, everybody is now getting bigger and bigger data sets. Well, even cloud data centers, you know, that do online backups and things, those are all using tape as well. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a fairly well-known problem. It's just that the scale of what we're trying to do adds to it in spades. Yeah. Sure. And it, yeah, I guess you guys are paying very close attention to Moore's law here to know it's going to take you 10 years to build this and try and anticipate what the hardware is going to be like as you get out that far. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we're fingers crossed that, um, the, the geeks inside Intel and AMD and all the chip manufacturers can keep Moore's law going for us. Right. Because <laughs> if you look at a plot of the top, 50 supercomputers since oh, the 1990s, it has been a nice, steady growth. Now, we need to see that continue to grow. Um, IBM have just announced a new 10 petaflop machine to be delivered in 2012, which follows the growth curve nicely. Hmm. Intel have just announced um, their new 3D chips. Yes. Which will have lower power consumption and be faster. Thank you very much, guys. Mm. You may well help us along the way. So, yes, we're, we're fingers crossed. Moore's Law stays there and keeps going. And I know there's a lot of pundits out there saying, oh, no, Moore's Law slowing down, Moore's Law slowing down. We don't see it. Hmm. No, it does seem to be holding together. I, I was reading the specs on Blue Gene Q, and they were after 20 petaflops for this year, but it looks like it's not going to make it this year. But 2012, I think, yeah. we'll see that. At 20 petaflops, now you're only talking about needing 50 of them to get your exaflop. Yeah, well, we're, we're starting to get there. Yeah. 
only 50. I mean, recognizing that the 20 petaflop version was how big? 3,000 square <laughs> yeah. feet drawing 6 megawatts? Well, you guys do are aware that May 21st is Judgment Day, so the world's going to come to an end. So what do you guys plan to do then? <laughs> Well, well, that's the, that's the Mayan calendar. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm such a wise ass, but geez, I'm just blown away by the scale. So, of is what this you're your career about. project, uh, professors? I mean, this this is ten years of work to get this thing built. Does it get better than this? This sounds like an unbelievable project. Well, uh, the, the project is. I mean, it's it, it's very ambitious. That's that's yeah. for sure, and. Uh, um, the way it's conceived is, is uh, to be an ambitious. I mean, if we don't reach it completely, that's that's uh, the, the result will still be extremely good. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I guess we can reach it uh, in steps, definitely, and that's what's, what's planned anyway. So there will be something like an SK-1. This is about a 10% oh, version of the full SK. And uh, then based on the um, experience we got, uh, building that SK-1 uh, will uh, plan and design this, the next step, and that's the full SK. Uh, whether that's in time, uh, in the current um, planning, uh, that's a different question, because uh, as, as we all know, we can't really uh, rely on, on Moore's law, really, completely. And uh, uh, But it's it's right on, on that curve of the top 50 uh, computers right now, and uh, network technology is also uh, going up that way. Storage technology is going up that way. And if you if you combine all of those uh, um, projections, then the SK should be possible uh, as planned. But of course, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, and uh, those big science projects are. Um, I mean, it's not like you're you're trying to build a dam or something like this yeah. where. Where um, time is critical, uh, we can wait a few few more years until it's really completed. And the, even the 10% SK is, is a, a great engine. And uh, ASCAP, the 1% level of, of uh, so the precursors right now, they are, they are the best radio telescopes on the planet. And wow. uh, uh, still, so those those steps are are very very valuable. And uh, to be ambitious, I think, is a good thing. And it uh, brings people together. It brings people together from all over over the world. It brings industry in into the picture uh, because they are very interested, as you can imagine, in uh, going that way. And it brings a lot of countries together as well. So th there's there's a lot of politics behind uh, such a big super science project. I look at the what went on with the Large Hadron Collider and think that's sort of humanity at its best. And it sounds like this is another one of those kinds of projects. Definitely. It's uh, the same kind of, of scale, maybe even bigger. And uh, I guess there will be only one such project going on within, within the next 10 to 20 years. There's nothing else planned, at least right now. And uh, uh, if, if countries and, and uh, governments can come together and agree on, on uh, building something like this, I mean, altogether, this is not a lot, lot of money for, for, let's say, 20 big countries. That's mm. not, not a big deal. Uh, compared to what is paid in, in other areas. For sure. And uh, and so it's definitely doable in terms of budget. Uh, it's very challenging in, in terms of technology and uh, also in terms of project management. Project management is very, very co complicated in, mm -hmm. in such a project. And uh, it's even more complicated because in this case, depending on what, where it's going to, uh, it's actually covering uh, the instrument itself is covering many countries. So if it's going to, going to be in South uh, Africa, in South America, um, then it's going to, to uh, cover something like between seven and nine countries, um, and that's that's very tricky, uh, especially in Africa. Uh, so Australia and New Zealand obviously much much easier in this uh, respect, and uh, so there will be. Quite, quite a discussion about where to, to go, really. So we can keep up with your progress at icarar.org. That's I-C-R-A-R.org. And I believe uh, not only do you have links to videos and, and media coverage and, and stories, but you also have a newsletter, an email newsletter we can subscribe to, right? Exactly. Uh, that's all there. It's uh, all easily reachable from the main page. And uh, I think there, there's no no problem uh, to, to get to nice videos, nice uh, simulations also for the SK, 
brass cup and all the other instruments we are working on. By the way, guys, uh, you know, NASA managed to land on the moon using the Apollo guidance computer, which only had 2K of memory. <laughs> so there. I don't know what you guys are using all this stuff for, but just saying. But, but you guys have to remember, NASA had to get the Australians to find where their modules were because it was out there and the signal got lost and you had to use the dish down here in Australia to uh, find it. Touché. I remember. Touché. Very good. Well, Professor Vitsenets and Professor Vincent, thank you very much for joining us and in, in geeking out with us this hour. And congratulations on such a great and ambitious project, and good luck. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Fantastic. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.